HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. If you've been a longtime listener of this show, you know that we spend a lot of time talking about farmers, but in my opinion, not enough time talking to them. That is, until now. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Paulette Satter, farmer owner of Satter Farms on the North Fork of Long Island. If you have eaten in a New York restaurant from fast casual to high end, or shop at Whole Foods, or order online from a delivery service like Our Harvest, you have no doubt come across their products. We will be discussing how Satter Farms got its start and what makes its model unique, as well as gain deeper insight into what issues farmers face every day and how the industry has changed for smaller and mid-sized specialty crop growers over the past decade. Paulette, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jenna. Pleasure to be here. I'm really excited you're here with me in the studio. Um, okay, so let's let's start from the beginning. Tell me about Satter Farms. How how big are your operations? Where are you located? What do you produce? Okay. Um, well, my husband and I started the farm 20 years ago now. Um, we started it essentially with the idea to grow um, produce for his restaurant. Oh. Yeah. Um, my husband, um, well, he was sort of a celebrity chef before celebrity chefs started happening on yeah. TV. Yeah. Uh, he was the opening chef of La Brenna Den. And I've heard of it. When I met him, he was he was chef at Lutes when Andre Saltner had retired. Oh. And I was in the wine business. Mm-hmm. He was in the kitchen. I was trying to sell him wine. <sighs> So um, we we met, married, and bought the farmland all within one year. What did, did he buy the wine? <laughs> he did. You know, a girl has to pay her rent in Manhattan. <laughs> so, all right, that sounds good. <laughs> yep. And so um, we started the farm. Basically, it was just a garden, and with the idea of growing um, produce for his restaurant. See, when he and his colleagues came from Europe, um, they were used to you know the markets in Paris and places real and, food. and yeah, real food and they were appalled <laughs> about what was here so funny enough a lot of his colleagues started asking him well what are you growing we'll buy anything you've got uh-huh. you know it was, yeah. it was sort of like that and we were in the beginning we were growing a to z i mean truly asparagus through zucchini yeah we were focusing on a lot of the um, greens and herbs that were hard to especially hard to find in the market like chervil yeah i didn't even know what chervil was it's hard to find i'm a home cook i didn't even know what it was very french yes yes and and we grew uh even uh, mosh which is spelled salad and and lots of uh um you know goodies that weren't uh weren't available and has that changed um since you originally 
were founded? Yeah, you know, there's there's economy of scale and and, and automation that's necessary as as thing as time goes on. It's also very hard to manage so many different crops. What with their their spraying needs and tending needs and watering needs and even temperature, we used to grow what I still think to this day was the best heirloom tomatoes ever. But um, you know, t- we decided to instead focus on our baby leaf salads, which is like spring mix, our mm-hmm. wild arugula, baby spinach, etc. And those uh, crops post-harvest temperatures are below 40, whereas tomatoes are 55. And so we didn't have storage. We were yeah. out of space. So we had to start, you know, eliminating crops as, as that uh, makes sense. time went on. Yeah. Um, and how big are operations now? Well, we're farming. So you started as a garden. <laughs> we started as a garden, and it expanded over the years. We never had a business plan. Um, we, I can remember us har- um, farming eleven acres, and then thirty-five. And now we're up to 250 on Long Island and 500 acres in Florida. Um, and I want to talk about your operations in Florida in, in just a minute. But in terms of where you started, you you started on the North Fork. Is that the original oh, yes. location? Absolutely. Okay. It's okay. where our, our, our farmhouse is, yeah. Um, and do you have a background in agriculture? How did you get your start? Yeah, I, I do. I, I grew up on a farm. But it was a dairy farm, which is very different. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it kind of gives you a certain work ethic. You know, it's, it's um, strange to me to be farming uh, in, a, in an area that's, you know, uh, next to homes and whatnot. Because... And fancy. Yeah, uh, it's no. not that fancy on the North Fork. It's, ah. it's, it's getting there. It's, <laughs> it's certainly beautiful. But the New York Times called it the Brooklyn of, yeah. of, of the East End. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, when I was little and I'd wake up in the morning on, on a you know warm mornings in the summer and I'd hear my father's tractor, you know, I to me that just meant all was well with the world you yeah. know when a neighbor hears you know an engine they're they're bothered yeah, <laughs> you they're know like they're gonna issue a noise complaint yeah yeah <laughs> so um but growing up on the farm gives you a certain um uh work ethic as mm-hmm. i said um Eberhard too also grew up in in a small village in germany your husband and, yeah yeah and he, um, they had the town bakery, and so he was used to, you know, the early morning rising, you know, building the the fire, the wood fire in the ovens, and and, you know, the whole the whole routine. Um, they would also make wonderful pastas and things. So uh, he, in a way, they grew fruit for their for their uh, pastries and whatnot. Yeah. So in a way, we came from similar but different backgrounds. But then I uh, went to um, uh, university for horticulture, mm-hmm. and I have a graduate degree in plant physiology. I just wow. love love the outdoors, love plants. It's it becomes inside you. It's, yeah, it's hard to explain. Well, there's something very intrinsic about um, growing your own food, um, and something that we as as people used to do a whole lot of, but yeah. um, don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you have a specific focus on sustainability in in your farm, from mm-hmm. what I've um, come to understand. Can you unpack what this means to you as a uh, farmer owner and how this affects your farming? practices? Oh, sure. It does from all different angles. Um, I mean, from what we grow, um, you know, it's, it's, as I said, it's hard to grow many different crops because it, then it's very labor intensive. And we have some, some of our empl- uh, crew have been with us now for eight, 10 years. And wow. Yeah. And We've never asked them to do anything we don't do, haven't done or still do, um, yeah. you know. But it's it, it can be really dull bunching you know radishes all day long. So we tend not to grow radishes only in certain <laughs> seasons. We try to be considerate to them. But beside the point, um, we um, we support our employees. I mean, we've done everything from you know lending money when there's mudslides in Guatemala to. 
oh, bailing them out of prison. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, many of them are, are young and, and, you know, they might, you know, uh, not quite know how to, you know, manage yeah. their lives in, until they get on the straight and narrow. Yeah. So, um, you know, we just feel like they're they're part of, they are our business. My husband and I don't have children. They're our children. Mm-hmm. They're part of our business. We... You know, we stick by them in every manner possible. I mean, eight to ten years is not, from what I understand, the typical time span to have a, uh, so, you know, someone with you working yeah. working the land. I mean, it's very transient, isn't it? Usually. Um, well, oh. Let's see. Valentin's been with us practically the whole twenty years, and he's brought his family. At times, his his father came, and, wow. and now his father retired, and and you know, it's it's we pay we pay a good living wage, um, and I, I believe that's why we have the loyalty. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. and that's that's hard to do. I mean, farms like many institutions or establishments in the food service industry operate at pretty thin margins. It's thin, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm all too familiar with that. Yes. <laughs> but So that's challenging. How do you kind of make that work uh, from a business perspective? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we cross our fingers. <laughs> like I said, we were never good with writing business plans. No, we, um, we tend to... Um, uh, you know, be able to give more, you know, bonus wise if, if it's been a, a good solid year. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, like I said, we're all in it for teamwork. There was a time when there were no raises for almost two years, but most all of them stuck with us through yeah. that through that episode because the farm wasn't doing as well. Well, we've had issues with the farm in Florida. Um, yeah. New York, Long Island's been terrific. The farmland there is amazing. Um, in Florida, we've just had some unlucky land that we've leased and had issues. Mm-hmm. I have a YouTube video out where we leased uh, some land in Sebring, Florida, and it was um, it had been cleared recently. And we did the soil test. Everything seemed totally fine. Um, but when we went there to start disking and bedding up for our crops, um, we found that they didn't pull the roots out, and we couldn't even bed up the soil. And so we had to clear this this, so, uh, this land. So they just, parcel. like, raised it but didn't really uh, they turn it up? They kind of cut it, uh, cut the, um, it was like 100-year-old cypress. They had to cut, like, they cut it below the soil surface, but they left all the roots. Oh. oh. <laughs> in, in, Sneaky. In the yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that that was that was two years worth of uh, yeah fun below slim profits let's yeah. say yeah um, tell me about the the farm you know the operations you run in Florida so um, first of all where in Florida do you is your are your farms now so? we're in Port St Lucie between Port St. Lucie and Okeechobee on sort of the eastern seaboard okay uh, just yeah um, and do does your staff co down with you like yeah. you spend time down yeah, there yeah. we um you know we uh, we would prefer not to, not to farm all, all winter in florida yeah but um we tried growing in a greenhouse um in long island in long island we got slaughtered with heating costs and that was even a, a greenhouse that we leased that was coal heated which at that time was the cheapest uh, fuel possible mm-hmm. um so that just was not sustainable so we ended up you know looking at florida in the first two years in florida we actually did very well um but um uh we ask our employees to come down our field crew mm-hmm. and most all of them do there's or five of them who did not this year, you know, family issues. Mm-hmm. So we try to find work for them up, uh, you know, here on Long Island. Uh, you know, it can be plowing snow. Uh, we also seed transplants for Florida. Oh. In the, yes, which sounds counterintuitive, but we have our greenhouses, and so we'll, we'll seed our uh, frisee heads and butter lettuce and whatnot in the greenhouse and ship them down. But it's it's... Sustainable only because when my husband ships up the the product, um, we wash and pack everything here on Long Island. When he ships up the product, we wash and sanitize the harvest totes and send them down. Also, the plants go down with the totes, so it's just a nice little loop, loop. we have going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So, 
what if, so we talked a little bit about kind of you know your label labor model and how that um, is part of your socially responsible business. Mm-hmm. Um, what about like from a sustainability perspective in terms of mm-hmm. are you organic? What kind of mm-hmm. commitments do you do you make? Um, you know, in that area. Sure. Well, we're we're East Coast growers. We tried to grow organically for the first three years, um, um, but um, when we when we moved to growing baby leaf crops. Mm-hmm. We're selling the leaves. Okay, so if you can picture this, I can control, like, let's say, powdery mildew on a tomato plant, an heirloom tomato plant. I can control it well enough that I still can ripen incredibly delicious fruit, high in sugar content. Mm -hmm. However... If I showed you a spinach leaf with powdery mildew on it, it looks it's gross. Not, it's it's not saleable. Yeah. So, um, because of the crops we chose, we have to use stronger fungicides at time, at times. Uh, usually, that's when you get that hot, sticky, drippy weather in New York, and you oh, know, it's coming. You feel it? Yeah. Well, when you <laughs> when it's dry, it's fine. If it's sunny and dry, we're totally fine. But when it's sticky, hot, humid. Then we get an issue, and we'll we'll reach for a stronger fungicide. So up until that time, we're using totally organic sprays, organically approved. And then um, you know the, the fungicide will for, will reach for that's stronger. Though in my mind, I, I don't even know why it's not approved for organic culture. But that's beside the point. So yeah. no, we're not organic growers. We're not certified organic, but we do grow as naturally as possible. And what does that what does that mean? Well, um, like I said, we use integrated pest management. So, um, first of all, we're only spraying when we have a need. I mean, there'll be spring crops we're bringing in that haven't had anything on them. Mm-hmm. Um, then, for the most part, we're using organically approved sprays. Um, you know, whether it's an insecticide or a fungicide, they're, they're It'll organically It'll be on the organically approved, approved yeah. Yep, yep. So, um you mentioned uh, integrated pest management mm-hmm. control techniques. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what that actually is, what mm-hmm. that looks like? Yeah. Um, so we'll, um, it's, it's involving both scouting for disease or insect and also anticipating. <laughs> Foresight. Because almost uh, nature sort of works right on the calendar, if you will. It's very strange. Like I can tell you, locally grown asparagus on Long Island will start on April 28th. It's, it's almost wow. like it's a done deal. i got to write that down. <laughs> but then I can tell you when cabbage lopers start and our baby bok choy, you know, it's, it's so it's knowing uh, the pattern, the history, the history of, of, you know, disease pressure. And again, it can change, it can shift. And so you have to be constantly aware with scouting. And our guys who've been with us for a long time, they know how to scout. They're, they've become incredibly good at this. So it's so it's re- it's like have, recognizing what's going to happen and then controlling for it in some mm-hmm. way. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh-huh. So you so you that's one um, thing that you do. Yeah. Oh, and then we do so much else on the farm. I, I mentioned my husband's European. He he said if. If anyone in Germany tried to grow transplants the way they do here, they would be arrested <laughs> because here it's traditionally grown as well in like speedling trays, these plastic or styrofoam trays that are then discarded. Um, which is totally not allowed in Europe. Um, so we we purchased a um, it's like a, a press pot machine and it it compresses peat moss into these little tiny, they almost look like brownies, and it puts a little seed right in the center of the brownie. And when we plant them, we're planting the little brownie cakes like just slightly below the soil surface, not all the way in, just a little bit. And the roots are really happy to just stretch down and, and get get into the soil. They latch on within two days. They're, they're starting to latch on. But then the heavy-duty trays that hold the brownie cakes are reused. Actually, we even bought those trays used uh, years ago, and we're still using the same trays. How about that? Mm. Um, So what, where can we find your products right now? Well, um, we are in retail stores. I think you mentioned uh, Whole Foods Mm -hmm. and our harvest. Um, We... um, 
we're working with Fresh Direct. They were actually one of our first uh, customers. Wow. And, you know, it's kind of interesting how this progressed because when we started farming 20 years ago, there was no locally grown food movement. Yeah. And none of the distributors were really interested in carrying us. They were like, well, we load all that in the West, you know, yeah. we don't need this. Um, so that's when we decided to just sell it ourselves and and, um, and distribute it ourselves. So when we first began, my husband would leave the dinner service at his restaurant at like midnight on Saturday yeah. night. We'd drive out at night, get up really early Sunday morning, and weed, seed, harvest, wash, pack stuff. By the way, that's like what, a two and a three hour drive? No, it's about, um, we could well, make it in, in under middle. an hour and a half oh, at midnight. Really? Oh, at midnight, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were always off hours. Once you get out of Queens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's a long uh, night anyway. Yeah, you, you so, uh, yeah, and then Sunday morning, um, Monday morning, we get up, uh, pack up the car and make deliveries heading up Park Avenue, you know, wow. Gramercy Tavern and places. So, okay, so you got your start. Um, well, first of all, you're, are you only local? Like, you only sell locally, regionally? Um, we we're selling in the the local regional area. I guess I'll say tri-state area. Um, so you know Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, mm-hmm. a little bit into Massachusetts on occasions. Um, there was <laughs> there was a shortage of organic um, certified spinach and arugula this past winter, mm-hmm. and it started happening. Last year, maybe even a little bit the year before, but this year was pretty bad, and I have a feeling next year will be even more severe. The reason being is that uh, these these crops, these baby leaf crops, are being grown in, in large uh, tracks in uh, Yuma and the Imperial Valley in the wintertime, and uh, the monoculture is, is I mean, it... You can fly over it for you know half an hour, and you're still flying over spinach. You know, yeah. so um, it's it's dense. And what's happened is that the the mildew in particular is endemic there now, and they have no resistant varieties. And so they're trying to grow organic spinach, and it's really really hard because so, it is a monocrop, yes, essentially. Yes, yes. And so we'd been filling in with a lot of the um, uh, spinach and, and arugula for the northeast wow and any in florida where you also grow or does well, is it just because it gets processed here um you mean do we have mildew in florida or do you also sell in florida we do sell in florida because we're locally grown down there yes. in the winter time yeah, yeah yeah so yeah we're yeah we're in whole foods and and we're, we're in distribution to restaurants because a lot of the chefs in miami are are new york city chefs they know us you know so we're, we're we feel like we're home there um, so how important was it to you to to sell the consumers in a certain geographic region based on seasonality? Like, was this something that um, has been your goal from the start? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we're on the doorstep of, you know, the densest population in this country. So yeah. I, I can't even grow enough for that, you know, which... I think that's you know, a really a, important point. It's a good to, thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a good, a good thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, and quite frankly, that's sort of why we chose to, to stay here and be here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I know people debate what does local mean, how many miles or yeah. what have you. But with, with Everhart and myself, it's more about the food of the moment, see? Um, I think it was two years ago. The Georgia peaches were amazing, just amazing. And they last like, I don't know, two, three weeks. It's so short. But to grab a fruit when it's of the moment, I mean, you know, who cares that it was trucked up from Georgia? It's, it's an amazing peach that comes in earlier than our local crop, and it's incredible. Um, you know, where we start to get dismayed is when people want, let's say, asparagus year-round. And, uh, you know, the, the as- local asparagus crop is only from April 28th. April 28th. Through, that, that specific date. <laughs> through about, uh, well, if we stretch it, June 20th. And that's it. But, see, if you go into a supermarket in, oh, I'll go back to Germany. Yeah. Um, the whole front of it will be filled with the crop that's of the moment. So if you go there on May 1st, 
you'll see all the different uh, grades of asparagus, white asparagus, Mm -hmm. some green, but mostly white. Wow. Um, All the different price per kilo for the different grades. And you'll see new potatoes and strawberries because that's of the season. But see, you know, I go into my grocery store on May 1st and I see, you know, Paper towels and and stacked, you know, bottled water or something. I mean, you know, um, we kind of lost our connection to the food of the moment in the season, you know. And retailers have been making a really great... You mean January isn't peak tomato season? Uh, (laughs) No, but you know what? The tomatoes in Florida are pretty darn good this year. Okay, so that that was going to be my question because it it all depends, like food of the moment. Okay, so that speaks to keeping it regional because in Southern California, you can have a lot of food, you know, like what are the seasons? Do they necessarily, tr- they don't there necessarily. There are seasons. Tr- there sure are. there are. Oh, of course there are. But, you know, what I don't like are the, are the crops that are, that shouldn't be grown in a region. Okay, let me give you an ex- another example. Yeah. Well, I mean, asparagus, when we were growing it, which we don't grow, do it anymore, but when we were growing it, and I, I had the first few spears, I, w- I would, I would make it a point to make a hollandaise and, and make, make them for breakfast yes. for, for, for us because they are amazing in the very beginning of the season. And then you can look at a crop like hmm, Brussels sprouts. Um, the Brussels sprouts on Long Island are the best tasting you're going to find anywhere. Okay. And, and they, it's the soils, it's, it's the salt air, it's, it's you know, the, whole, the whole package there that contributes to the flavors. But also, ours get hit by frost. And, you know, in the West, they're growing Brussels sprouts where there's no frost. And to me, they're just kind of rubbery and sort of tasteless. And, mm-hmm. and ours are amazing. So we were running a lot of Brussels sprouts with um, sweet green this past winter, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like their food. Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. good, good food. Um, do you, it, I mean, is this opinion shared by your fellow farmers? I know it's really hard to kind of speak for broad swaths of people, but, you know, this idea of food of the moment versus, you know, really super seasonal and just staying, for instance, with what is grown by the season in Long Island. Yeah, I'm not sure what's on my neighbor's tables, <laughs> but uh, maybe a, a portion of, of this comes from Eberhard being chef and being so sensitive to the seasons himself. You know, when when he made the decision to leave you know, his his restaurant careers behind and come out to the farm, I said to him, ah, oh, you're giving up the limelight for the sunlight, you know? <laughs> and once <laughs> once you get that rhythm in you, it, it's, um, it's, it's a great thing. And, you know, now it's, I know it's hard for people to connect to the farm seasons, mm-hmm. um, but now with social media or, or what have you, if you find somebody who's, who's, you know, well, I mean, we're northeast here, mm-hmm. we're talking um, the northeast uh, seasons, but... Uh, you could probably find somebody who's blogging about, you know, what what I'm speaking of, you know, the the food that's of the moment. And there, there's always something that's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, how has this rise in kind of locally grown seasonal food affected your farm in the, in the past few years? Um, and what effect do you see it having on kind of smaller and mid-sized farms in general in the area? Yeah, I think it's been an immense help. I, I don't know if people really realize how much their choices matter to all of us farmers it does um we were we were had our you know we were up against walls many times just trying to generate the revenues that we needed for the uh for the farming operation um farming is not cheap to get into it's it's it carries a heavy ticket and and when we started we didn't even own a screwdriver you know at that point um yeah even though I grew up on a farm, but that was, you know, a a long time ago. Um, But um, uh, so... The, ent- the the barrier to entry is very high. And is it still high? Yes. Um, one thing we were really faced with was there was no infrastructure on Long Island. There were, you know, you, if you're growing, well, let's go back to the Imperial Valley, let's say. There are, there are people that you contract with for um, the field prep or for spraying or for even harvesting. 
Um, then when it's harvested, it, it gets hauled to a, you know, somebody's purchased it or for a processing, and then it gets put through a processing facility, and that's where it's branded. Yeah. Um, you know, it could be this brand or that brand. And, um, um, but all of that could be subcontracted out, whereas us, we had nothing. <laughs> we, you know, so we needed to purchase all the equipment, which included like a, a vacuum cooler, mm-hmm. which takes the field heat out of the product. We, we can't farm without it. We can't farm baby leaf without uh, the proper uh, post-harvest physiology uh, you know, methods. Mm-hmm. Um, a vacuum cooler costs about as much as a home in middle America, so it's... And is it is it more cost-effective instead of uh, like um, subcontracting it out, or why did you decide, for instance, when you started to purchase the equipment versus to... Oh, well, we leased it the first year, and I, I had asked for it for, I think, I, May 15th. By May 30th, it still wasn't there, and the guy who was still using it for cabbage down in Georgia or somewhere yeah. still had it and wasn't giving it up yet, and I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. I think that there is this kind of misconception from some people that um, that farming's easy. To, I mean, certainly not people who have a lot of experience with the food industry, but you know, I think that there could be especially in our current political environment, people that look at some of the things USDA funds and make kind of generalizations about, like, it's so there are so many grants available for farmers. Oh, gee. <laughs> well, I will say, I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for the USDA um, loan programs, mm-hmm. not grants, they do loans. Um, but um, um, <laughs> I should show you my files, how thick the applications are for what it amounts to, not a whole lot of the percent of the cost of the piece of equipment. Yeah. No, there's really not much going on there. Trust yeah. me. Yeah. It's um, it's a lot of work for a small percentage of what you really do need. Yeah. I mean, there there are agencies, but believe me, nothing is easy. When we wanted to enlarge our, um, get a larger wash line for our baby leaf, I had to use five different agencies to fund it. And an agency. Oh, well, I had a Whole Foods local producer loan program, Long Island Development Corp, Empire State Development. Uh, You also have to be empowered to know where to go for your resources. You have to be able to do all the paperwork. It's it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So do you think that the barriers to starting have been, have increased or just are kind of about the same? I, I sit on the Governor's Regional Economic Development Council for Long Island, mm-hmm. and I know that almost all of us, all of the regions have been working to try to um, create the infrastructure that's needed for farms, you know, especially with the Food Safety Modernization Act mm-hmm. and uh, those requirements for record keeping and traceability. You have to be able to identify this box of spinach, what lot and block number was it harvested on in Florida and you know harvest date, etc. It has to be that information has to be carried through the whole processing through the uh, consumer, uh, the the you know, the supply chain to the consumer, the ultimate consumer, so that you know exactly where it came from and who had their hands on it. So more regulations. It's a lot of regulations, yes, yes. I'm usually a really big fan of regulations, but I could see how that is. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's hard when you either, you know, don't have the time or the, you know, the um, ability to to handle all this. Yeah. And that could be potentially why a lot of, well, certainly why a lot of, we saw a lot of farmers and people just in general in in rural communities come out in support of Trump because he Mm -hmm. is very anti-regulation. Well, but, you know, we're dismayed over dismantling the EPA and funding. Um, (laughs) It's going to be a real problem. And it affects us. I mean, we we have rules and regs to follow with the EPA, the DEC, DEC, um, but we we don't believe that that should be um, uh, unfunded. What um what kind of can you give us an example of the type of r- r- rule or regulation that that you have uh, that the EPA enforces? Uh huh. Um, 
I'm not quite sure. It's not quite the EPA. We deal more with the DEC, Department of Environmental Conservation. And a lot of that has to deal with, um, you know, water withdrawal rates. They don't want the the aquifer to become uh, uh, salinified because if you're pulling out water and and just running it through the back down through the ground, um, the salt content will build up in in the soils and, and in the aquifer. So they monitor that. That's one example. Okay. Yeah, no. No, I mean, that that's really great. I mean, I kind of, I have a tendency to get into the weeds. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it's always helpful to provide a little more color around, you know, some of these common sense um, procedures that, mm-hmm. um, that the government uh, expects out of their growers mm-hmm. um, for the betterment of yeah. people, like health yeah. and, and the environment. Sure, and there's a lot of concern over the nitrogen runoff into the bays in Long Island, which is, is causing the algae bloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there was, there's been some fish die off. There was another um, flood of it this past summer. Nitrogen but, from pesticides? Well, I mean, they're, they're, trying, they're trying to decide the source. Um, farmers really control the amount of nitrogen they're putting on because, A, it's expensive. <laughs> we're not, right. we're, we're yeah. not uh, uh, you know, Applying it luxuriously, yeah, um, and so also we're using um, uh, time-released uh, nitrogen fertilizers so that it's not just you know nitrogen's highly uh, uh, soluble. So if it if it rains, it can all pretty much you know disappear down through the um, uh, down into the bay. But um, they they think more of it is probably the, um, the septic conditions out there. Yeah. Uh, most people are still on their own septic tanks and whatnot. And huh. they, yeah. So, okay. So how have you seen, just kind of to, to talk a little bit more about policy before we switch back, because I have a few questions about some, some of the more business aspects of, of your work. But mm-hmm. um, with the new administration, is there anything, we talked about the EPA being defunded, but is there anything that you would like to see happen? Anything that was kind of in the works um, before the change in the administration that um, would really affect the way that you do business? Hmm. Um, you mean hmm, more regulation? Yeah. <laughs> My neighbors will kill me. No, uh, no I'm, t- I'm Well, teasing. you talked about FISMA. No, um, is there a little yeah, bit? Yeah, you know, FISMA is, it's, it's a love-hate relationship, and a lot of the... Um, Growers are having a hard time wrapping their arms around it. Um, they've, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of paperwork. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot for them to handle. I mean, we've been uh, third party audited now for mm, I think it's about ten years now. Wow. So we've we've been on that path. It's it's not an issue for us, but uh, you know we we pretty much have some uh, you know administrative help that that you know works with this record keeping with us. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's it's too encompassing. But you know, it it makes you a better operator. <laughs> Yeah, it does. Um, not only for food safety aspects, but, you know, tracking all of your inputs, you know, whether it's your fertilizer, your spray material, where it was applied, lot block, you can review, hey, why why did, were the yields so low on this block and so much better there? You know, y- you can use the information to, to improve your operation. Um, it also seems like once you kind of start going down a certain path and abiding by certain regulations, because because we know that most regulations are they're phased in over time and mm. you start to kind of monitorize. It's hard to go back because you've already invested in doing whatever you were supposed to be, be doing. Well, yeah, but, you know, understand that our customers require this now. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And uh, it was actually Whole Foods who, who set us on the path for our first third-party audit. They, a Baby Leaf needed to have a third-party audit, so we had to create the HACCP plan for it and, and implement it and, and follow through. Is there any support that you receive from government to update your practices or facilities or that farmers do in general? Um, they, um, there was just a, um, this past, um, uh, winter, there was a, um, a meeting where, uh, the Produce Marketing Association came out to Riverhead and met with farmers and tried to offer assistance to, to get them started on a GAP, Good Agricultural Practices mm-hmm. Program, um, a couple of them have signed on, and a couple of other vegetable growers decided they're just going to grow flowers because that's, <laughs> they, can't, they, they can't get there. Um, okay, so I 
was so wrapped up in our conversation. I'm, I'm forgetting to take a, a com- we, we commercial break. So we're going to go to a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But then when we get back, I've got um, a couple other mm-hmm. questions about your model specifically that I want to get into. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we are speaking with, I am speaking with Paulette Satter from Satter Farms on Long Island. Um, okay, so before the break, I, I promised we were going to talk a little bit more about kind of the business model and how, and operations. Um, and the first question uh, I want to discuss is, how did you make the jump? So it sounds like you were you started kind of selling to restaurants in mm-hmm. New York City, specifically, mm-hmm. and now you are in broader food retail environments like Whole Foods what we've been talking about. So, And I know that that's like a big challenge. Um, I just had a representative from the Food Marketing Institute, which reps oh, supermarkets. Oh, yes, Rick Stein, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yes, yeah. I had. I, I, I he's heard great. Oh, yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, so we discussed like the their barriers to kind of from, the super, from both sides mm-hmm. um, in terms of like producer having enough volume and retailer being able to... Um, find those products mm-hmm. and sell them. So um, from the farmer's perspective, how do you sort of mm-hmm. penetrate the broader uh, retail environment mm-hmm. or how did you do that? Yeah. Okay. So in the in the very beginning, we would, um, even that back then, we identified like a crop uh, or two or three that we wanted to run with. And that's when we started booting crops out of our program yeah. so that we could have some significant volume to sell. So in the beginning with Whole Foods, for example, we were delivering to each store direct because we didn't have so much product. We didn't, um, we we weren't big enough to to convince them to put us into distribution. Mm -hmm. And we had had some bad experience with other, um, with another store and their distribution center where they weren't rotating the product and old product was being delivered on, you know, with two days dating left on it. And so that was, that was not good. So we, we wanted to start slowly. And so, you know, after we started, you know, adding on the acreage, getting more experience, um, we did uh, um, finally work it out with uh, with Whole Foods that each of the stores is ordering. So um, they'll put in their orders by a day and we're, we're delivering to the distribution center, but it's going immediately out on their trucks. So it's never sitting in their warehouse. And we like that idea because, yeah. you know, it's you know quick and we're all about fresh it was the same thing with fresh direct you know when we started we we didn't even know like how many pounds to put in a box or you know how to pack things and so we were kind of working with each other because their uh their whole business model was sent was set on buying from farms direct um and here we were so close you know they, yeah. it was almost difficult for them to realize hey you know they can deliver to us every day every day every day instead of just you know hauling from the west and so you know it was like yeah, we met, but we had a date for a while before we got it. We got all the details figured out. You know how we were going to live together, and it's been a fantastic relationship since. Um, so, do you? So you had to kind of narrow down your crops. Up. Supply. That was the start of narrowing down the crops. Yeah. How did you decide which crops? You know, how did you select those? 
Um, I guess the ones that we thought suffered most in transit, uh, that was uh, one of the factors that we looked at. Um, what we could automate for. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. Um, so does the the procurement process, is there any, in terms of like setting your growing schedule, mm-hmm. was that was that challenging? I mean, like how far in advance do you have oh, to plan? Oh, yeah. Our seeding schedule is brutal. I mean, we're seeding crops every three, four, five days, depending on the crop, because if you want, you know, wild arugula to be, you know, so many inches tall, it, it grows fast in, in yeah. the summer. And then you have to figure it changes over the course of the year, because uh, if on June 20th, it's the longest day of the year, arugula might take 28 days. Whereas if I'm seeding in October, which I do because I can harvest on Long Island well in November, yeah, it can take it can take 35, 40 days. So all of that has to be calculated trying to get that leaf that same size all the time. And I mean, yeah, uniform, so you can mm-hmm. so your customers know exactly. So, so it looks the same. We try to get it to look the same. I, I by the way, have a, a big box like with a bigger box of your arugula in my fridge right now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. It's the best. You know, when we, st- from the very get-go with us, it was always about the flavor. And we, it took us five years to perfect frisee, find the right varietal find, and get it right. Uh, arugula, we're growing the best tasting arugula. And just just now in the wintertime, one of the seed reps from Europe came to Everhard and he says, no, no, I've got this other fantastic varieties for, to try. Everhard, he grew them out for them. And he's like, nothing tastes as better as this. <laughs> You're Still like, nothing. Nope, we, uh, you know, yeah. so it might grow faster. It might be more resistant to mildew. But no, we're all about the flavor. Um, how, it, yes, and, and that I can definitely attest to. Um, okay, so that's, that's one aspect, like mm-hmm. in terms of procurement and sales. What about branding? So how, how important do you think it is to create a recognizable brand um, from for your farm, and I mean, is this something that was that you even prioritize? Yeah, from the get go, I think before we even like planted a seed, we we got our logo done yeah. by a friend in the city, and 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 branded ourselves because. I don't know. I think we just had a sense of the fact, even though there was there was no locally grown food movement, it, you know, it wasn't even on anybody's radar. We just felt that everybody should know who their farmer is. Even when I first graduated from college, I and I moved to a small town to teach, and. I mean, even then, like, I don't know, I knew my butcher, I knew my, you know, and I, you just, yeah, yeah, you know, I just kind of made my food connections. Yeah. It's, it seems so really hard in terms of if you look at all of the things that you have to do as a farmer owner, um, including working the land and making sure your, you know, your field crew is well taken care of and applying for a grant, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot, right? Um, finding retailers, like, it seems like, Marketing might be a hard thing for a lot of people to yeah, prioritize. Yeah, see, we were lucky because of our background. I had been in the wine business for 12 years in New York City, and and Everhart all, had all of his chef friends. So for us, we were comfortable talking to you know uh, the you know chefs or, or stores. It, Selling it yourself, su- it doing wasn't outreach, such a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What advice do you have for those um, who aren't you know right now in that situation, but who want to kind of gain um, increased brand awareness for mm-hmm. the work they're doing on their farm? You know, really, I say identify a crop and run with it. <laughs> you Interesting. Know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. There's there's definite holes in crops at times of the year, whether it's English peas or this or that or the other thing. There's crops you can identify and run with. And just start to kind of scale up. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of messages in particular? Have you found certain messages like, say, Know Your Farmer or certain campaigns that, um, you know, have worked for you in the past? Um. I, I think just the general awareness and, uh, you know, I mean, distributors are now starting programs. I mean, Baldor in the Bronx yep. started uh, their local pledge, and they just started that last last season, last summer. And it, it was really effective for us. Um, what it is is that if a restaurant signs up for the local pledge, when they're calling in their order and, you know, getting one of the operators, um, and they say they want arugula, mm-hmm. 
they it will default to our arugula had if they've signed up to, for the local pledge if ours is available and within the, the certain price range parameters and it made a huge difference in in the amount of um, product we did and it was fantastic and I think it's it works well for the the restaurants as well because they don't have to sit there and say you know Satter Farms arugula XYZ you know this that the other thing you know it'll it'll be local and and so if they're saying they're making a local commitment in their own restaurant mm-hmm. they are following through yeah in an easier fashion so these kind of um, bigger what are they like labeling schemes that you can support or you can you can um supply like locally grown or you know whatever yeah i mean you know in in florida right now if if you go into whole foods it's it says fresh from florida on our on our containers there Mm -hmm. Uh um what do you uh (laughs) <laughs> so one of the things that we talk a lot about in this on this show is the rural community versus urban areas and we know that these two um there's been like an increased disassociation between the two mm-hmm. so how can in your opinion how can farmers and cons- farmers in rural communities and consumers in cities connect with each other more often is this like going yeah, to farmers markets or yeah the, certainly farmers markets can be a conduit for that information i mean I, you know i think that uh, i was just at a conference in philadelphia a produce marketing association conference and, and a lot of the talk was about that you know we know the consumers want locally grown and they they want to know more about the the family or the person who grew it and the farmer wants that to happen, and certainly, you know, the let's say the buyer gets the information from the farmer, but then to try to trickle it down through, you know, the the store manager, the produce manager, the guy the guy who might you know encounter a customer on the floor. It's it's a difficult uh, thing, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's putting too much responsibility on that guy on the floor standing in front of the uh, you know squash or something. Uh, so, it's um, there are platforms being developed. And I'm looking into them. Um, that uh, so, for example, you'd you'd walk in um, next to the squash. It'll have an iPad, and you can just you know have a look at it, and it'll tell you exactly who it is. And if me as a farmer wanted to send a video about us, that mm-hmm. video would pop up saying that it's it's my product, and it's easy for the store because. The store just needs to scan in the uh, the code on receiving, which they do anyway for inventory. Right. So, and the minute they scan it, it now populates the fact that that's the product that's on the shelf. Yeah. So there. That's innovative. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we're looking into that. Also, I mean, we talked a little bit about kind of some of these delivery services, like. Mm-hmm. Um, Fresh Direct, like, well, I mean, our harvest, I'm thinking, which is small, a small growing company, which mm-hmm. works to kind of cut out cut out the middleman, mm-hmm. if you can also mm-hmm. um, do that. And, you know, people can source yeah. their products right from That's here. actually why we were, in the very start, why we were interested in working with Fresh Direct, because... It was all on the web, and they could say this is us and it. tell our story. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas when we tried to do it with, um, you know, a, a bricks and mortar store, you know, and I said I have locally grown spinach and arugula, for example, they would put it in a display on the end of the aisle, out of refrigeration, with some corn and tomatoes, <laughs> and then call me in the end of the day like, and say this stuff is wilting. Yeah. <laughs> like, so hmm. I, that's not going to work, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't. What we'd like to see, the growers would like to see um, retailers really committing to a local program. I mean, you know, it's okay to just bring in some corn and tomatoes in August. Sure, fine. But, you know, we're growing a lot of other stuff and a lot of other seasons. And, you know, I mean, Billy might be growing English peas, but who's buying them? You know, unless he were to start getting a a larger volume and, and, you know, market them. And we've we've quite frankly done some marketing for some of our neighboring farms. Um, yeah, oh, so. that's nice. That's nice of you. Well, it's <laughs> you know we started that from the get go because we were going to restaurants and you know I just didn't want to go with uh, you know a couple of our crops. We wanted things we didn't grow. We never grew sweet corn, for example, and people want it. You yeah, know, restaurants, yeah. stores, they want it. You know, in season. So that that has a overall 
positive effect on your community sure. in general. Yeah, we hope. Um, farming's tough. We know that. Has there ever been any time in your career where you wanted to throw in the towel and, like, ah, I want to do something easier? <laughs> well, we think that we're unemployable at this point. We're too opinionated <laughs> and too independent. So that's not going to work. Um, I, I, if my husband hasn't, like, quit, like, a hundred times, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm I'm stubborn. <laughs> I think that's a good a good uh, quality to yeah. have. Mm-hmm. You got to be resilient. Yeah, yeah. I guess we're just too little to fail. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know if that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that works that way. <laughs> um, any plans to on a on a, on a positive side? Mm-hmm. Any plans to grow and scale the business? Yes, yes. Actually, I mean, when I said that we were lacking infrastructure, we still are. After twenty years, I still have pieces of equipment I need to to make the product better mm-hmm. and and to make the work better for my team yeah. you know so it's not so onerous um, you know the, we do a lot by hand still so yeah there are investments that are needed so we need to grow bigger to, <laughs> to absorb the investments and uh, you know we're doing business now t- speaking of identifying a crop and running with it we're doing business now with um, like blue apron kit box mm-hmm. And, oh, my gosh, it's fantastic because we've identified, well, a handful of crops, and um, um, their volume is huge. I mean, for us, it's huge. Yeah. Um, And once I mentioned that to one of the buyers, and he's like, Paulette, this was only 8% of what I needed this week. And I'm like, I'm going to get bigger. (laughs) So, yeah. And, you know, actually using a kit box company such as Blue Apron really helps you become seasonal because a seasonal eater. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I see how they're handling it. I mean, right now we're we're shipping them baby bok choy and Swiss chard, and that's what's in the recipes. And that's very timely for the season. Swiss chard is a traditional... um, uh, it's made with eggs for the you know, the Easter time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's one of the recipes. Um, well, that's uh, that that sounds wonderful. Does does there? I don't really know uh, that much about Blue Apron, but does there? Um, do the Broxes change with the seasons or? Yeah, you know they have chefs like, developing the recipes, yeah. and the chefs are highly attuned to the seasons. And, um, and does that change depending on your geographic area? I I'm not sure because I'm just shipping in the in the East Coast region. Okay. They, they also have West, so I'm sure okay. it's probably different out there. I don't know that. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, all right. Well, we have to wrap up in a second, but. One question I wanted to be sure to get in here um, in, into our conversation is the issue, as I'm sure you're well aware, um, the fact that not enough young people want to go mm. into farming. And if we don't have farmers anymore, we don't have food. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do you think we can do um, to encourage people to go into this profession? Yeah, it's hard to encourage somebody because it's it's an immense amount of work. It's tough, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I also spoke at the start how it's innate in both Eberhard and myself, and it almost has to be, it has to be that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, going out and weeding is, is I, I, I'll do it on a Saturday almost all day. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's Most people sick. don't feel like that. <laughs> that's sick. <laughs> but um, I was just to a farmer's social um, on the east end of Long Island. It was held by Peconic Land Trust. And I was happy to see that I hardly recognized anybody there because they were all younger than me. And it used to be I was the youngest person in the room. Yeah. So that's encouraging. And there are programs for beginning farmers where um, there's a, a farm in Southhold where you can lease um, parcels to try uh, mm-hmm. trial crops. And, you know, one guy did um, hops, and uh, now he's growing a huge amount of hops. Oh, one couple did um, uh, pasture-raised chickens, browders, birds, and now they moved off that... uh, To a bigger space. To a community space, to their own operation, their own farm. Yeah, so it's an incubator for beginning farmers, which is terrific. That's amazing. Uh Any advice before we we have to go? Any advice, lessons learned for those young farmers that we have? I might let you know what my mom said when she when I bought the farm and she came to visit she just looked at me and she said 
Paulette, what are you doing? You grew up on a farm. You should know better than this. <laughs> so <laughs> it's worked out okay, though. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. So just stick with it. Just stick with it. <laughs> That's right. it. Never, never quit. I love it. That's yes. Um, okay, we're going to have to wrap up um, with that today. But Paulette, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a show. lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzet and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Vita Hirscht. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And hey, if you like what you hear, uh, let us know in the comment section on either of those platforms. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.